Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Aparna Kopalam, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Walter Johnson about his indispensable new book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Johnson, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me just start by asking about what led you to become a historian of race and racism in America and how your relationship to history has changed over the course of your career. Um, well, it's been so long. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously a, a whole layered set of, of answers to that. I think that probably the most pertinent one um, comes from my first year in graduate school. I had gone to graduate school to study political thought in early America, Republican political thought, small R Republican political thought, um, which is something I still think is, is completely fascinating. But I was taught, I took a class from Nell Irwin Painter, who had just arrived at, um, at Princeton when I started my PhD. And I really became convinced by her that um, if I wasn't studying what I've come to call the history of racial capitalism, um, I wasn't studying American history. And so, and, and, you know, there was probably a way that I could have done that. I'm certain there's a way I could have done that through the history of, of Republican political thought. But, um, the way that I, I ended up doing it was under her direction and studying, uh, the slave market in, um, in New Orleans. That was the topic of my dissertation. And it's just kind of gone from there. Um, the second part of the question was, how has my relationship to history changed? Is that, mm-hmm. um, I guess I'm a little bit more, <laughs> it sounds strange to say, but I think I'm probably a little bit more interested in history than I was when I started out. I was not a conventional historian. I don't think, I think I was very, um, I was a little bit of an outlier. I wasn't particularly concerned with change over time, which Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of historians will will think is the the hallmark of the the discipline, and so the first book I wrote was really I think more influenced by what I think of as a kind of an anthropological approach. Um, mm-hmm. It had certain sorts of literary, I guess even modernist literary overtones. Um, it was very very focused with people's self-understanding of events and with different perspectives and was concerned with using different perspectives on a single event to to problematize the notion that the event could be understood from any kind of one single orthodox position. And I think that that um, position, that, you know, that idea, that that inclination on my part has stayed with me in a kind of a a suspicion of many uh, of the orthodox categories of interpretation. 
But at the same time, I think I have become more interested in um, stories about change over time, stories about political economy, stories about political organizing. And I think that, that both my, my second book and, and this book that I've just finished show that. I think I've become, in some ways, um, more influenced by, by Marxism and in some ways more critical of it. Um, I think I've become, I've learned a lot um, about what I would call the black radical tradition. And that's, that's now um, the kind of intellectual ground of my work. Great. Thank you for that. Um, also, what brought you to this particular project to St. Louis? And you start to go into it in the preface of the book a little bit, yeah. talking about how you came to it as more of a citizen than a historian. What does that mean? Yeah, that actually, I have a very specific answer for that, which is that I had been invited sometime in the fall of 2013 to give an address at Washington University, and that was scheduled for October of 2014. And it was supposed to be a keynote address at a graduate student conference. And the topic was something like the future of the past. And obviously that was um, broad enough that I found it completely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't write the paper. You know? and so, so coming up to the time that I was supposed to, to go out there um, is when, when Michael Brown got shot. That was August the 9th of 2014 when the uprising began. Um, and because I am from Missouri and because of the way that I have for a long time tried to link my intellectual life um, to political engagement of various kinds, I felt like I couldn't go to Missouri and not talk about Michael Brown, not talk mm-hmm. about Ferguson, not talk about what was happening um, without getting too uh, you know, smarmy about it, I felt called. And so I started at that point to look at the political economy of Ferguson, which is kind of following my turn of mind, the way that I think about um, violence and white supremacy in society is inseparable from political economy. They're one and the same thing. And the first thing I, I discovered really, you know, just by looking at a map of Ferguson, really, was that there's a $26 billion a year corporation in the city limits of Ferguson, Emerson Electric. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed incredible to me. It seemed puzzling. It seemed um, brazenly obscene that the police department in Ferguson was farming um, poor black motorists, motorists in general, but particularly poor black motorists, for traffic tickets and issuing all these warrants and people are getting put in jail in order to balance the city's books. And I I thought, well, why isn't this corporation paying taxes? Why why is this city in this kind of financial straits? And so that led me into an investigation of the the politics of um, tax abatement and underassessment of real property in St. Louis County and um, gradually into a little bit deeper analysis of the history of race, space, and and real estate of white supremacy and wealth in the city of St. Louis over the course of the 20th century. And even at that point, I didn't didn't settle on writing a book about St. Louis. I, I was, to some degree, I think ambivalent about going back to Missouri, which is a place that I, I love 
and very much identify with. And yet there were reasons that I left and haven't gone back. You know, I mean, I've been back to visit, but haven't gone back to live. Mm. And um, it, it took me a while to, to really, really settle in and, and decide to, to write a book about it. But it, at some point, um, as I thought more about it and I thought about the imperial history of, of St. Louis, things that I had known about from my earlier work on the 19th century, the way that St. Louis functioned as the hub of the Western Department of the United States Army in, in the 19th century, it, it seemed to me like there was just too much there to ignore, too many, too many stories that needed to, to be told, and also a chance to try to tell a story that was at once about the history of imperialism and, and anti-Blackness. Great. Yeah, that's actually um, anticipating what I was going to ask you next, which is that the book really begins with, and one of the key arguments of the book is that anti-Blackness has everything to do with imperialism. So could you talk a bit more for our listeners about what you mean by that and what is um, gained by having this kind of removalist um, you know, understanding of white supremacy as well as having uh, an understanding of white supremacy as predatory? Yeah, so one of the things that I learned really in writing my second book was about the very, very deep connections between the history of the United States slavery and um, Indian removal and imperialism in the Deep South. And um, the fact that I can, you know, I mean, it's, it's not as if nobody had um, made that point before. Many people had. I had um, written an entire book, one book. You know, which I'm very proud of, Soul by Soul, my first book, which didn't really engage that question forthrightly. And so I tried in my second book to do that. So I had tried in my second book, uh, River of Dark Dreams, to do that. But when I started to look at the history of Missouri, I saw something different. Anti-blackness and the anti-blackness that is directly related to Indian removal in the Deep South, in the slaveholding South, the enslaving South, is um, pronatalist. It, it, it's very, very focused on the question of social reproduction. The social reproduction of the society depends upon the biological reproduction of the enslaved population. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I ha- had worked on in the second book is, is a moment in the late 1850s when people, white people, slaveholders in the Deep South, start to think about trying to reopen the Atlantic slave trade. And I had recognized that that was a way of trying to open up a a pathway of uh, commercial reproduction to replace the biological reproduction of enslaved people. All of that had made me very acutely attuned to the reproductive dynamic of racial capitalism and imperialism. And it, that stands in contrast, of course, to the, um, exterminationist mm. approach to, to Native Americans. Um, so the, the, the slaveholding imperial project was at once exterminationist in relationship to Native Americans and pro-natalist in mm. relationship to African Americans. What I found in Missouri was different. And um, I found a, a um, social formation that was removalist and eventually exterminationist or exterminationist from the beginning and removalist um, in relationship to Native Americans. 
but also found that um, from the very beginning and increasingly over the course of the 19th century, I think it was removalist and exterminationist um, in relationship to African-Americans. And so as I thought more and more about it, it seemed to me like that was a, a Western as opposed to a Southern pattern of, of anti-blackness. Now, those are schematic categories. And there were slaveholders in Missouri, um, particularly in central Missouri, but also in St. Louis, who were very, very concerned about the reproduction of enslaved people. And so their anti-blackness reflected this, this other pattern. And certainly over the course of the 19th century, particularly after the Civil War, um, people in the South become more and more white people in the South become more and more um, exterminationist. They removalist. They want to get rid of, of African-Americans. But I, I felt like I saw something, and this is you know, based on, on work, um, prior, prior work. You know, people, people, I'm not the, the first person to have, have worked on the history of St. Louis by any stretch, and I'm, I'm not really the first person to have made that connection. But as, as I worked, it became more and more um, a part of the way that I saw not just the history of the 19th century, but I saw the history of, of the city. And, and I think arguably the, the West, the American West, up through the 20th century. Right. And it all in the book begins with the story of settler colonialism, which is much more than settler colonialism, as you show. I mean, I read it as um, you showing this push for deregulation from below all throughout the early 19th century. So we see these characters in the book. We see these white settlers who are hungry for land um, and they're pushing the government to abandon Indian diplomacy and to open up land um, to be able to be acquired directly or quick, more quickly. Um, and we see, you know, white supremacist militias, which are preempting the U.S. Army's invasion of Native American land. Um, we're seeing commercial interests which preempt um, the militarization of key economic corridors. So it's a lot of stuff happening that um, begins at the ground level and then pushes up. Um, could you talk a bit more about if that's how you were thinking about it as you wrote it? And um, how do we understand this transition of St. Louis from a fur trade hub to um, a settler empire hub. That's fantastic the way that you, that you put it. And I, I think that's probably more clear. You, you put it more clearly than I managed to put it in the book, but you're exactly right. What I'm trying to do is to think fairly carefully but about the relationship between um, the government capitalist kind of commercial, mostly merchant um, actors and white settlers in militia. And to not think of those different pieces as always unified, to think about them as murderous and white supremacist um, in different ways, in ways that sometimes come into conflict. And so, for instance, the United States Army is, um, in many instances in the 19th century, frustrated with the fact that um, white settlers and also commercial interests, particularly in, in the region I'm talking about, fur traders, are getting way out in front of, of the army and they believe are drawing the army into conflicts. And um, that's, you know, that, that's not to say that they don't uh, cooperate all the time, 
uh, nor is it to say that when the army eventually does intervene, um, you know, I, th- I think in, in almost any given instance, they end up taking the part of, of the settlers. It's just to try to understand the, the complexity of the, of the interests. And I, I think that, that as the um, century goes on from the, from the beginning of the 19th century up through the, um, you know, even, even through the 1890s, gradually the United States Army becomes more and more the, um, the leading edge of, um, of violence. Um, replacing settlers and and gradually over the course of the century, I think it's probably possible to say that settler interests in the sense of people who are going to go out and want to want to live on the land and and have farms and and families, I think that those interests are gradually replaced by corporate interests, by railroad interests. And so what you see by the end of the century is the the railroad companies in the United States op- Army operating, Hand in hand, um, you know the 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 that there so there's there's a set of changes. Now, one of the things that I I think about a lot, and I'm not certain that I have a set of good answers to, is that even as these things change, and even as I'm interested in, and I think it's important to track those changes. The the story looked at from the other side is. A, a, a story of repetition, of the repetition of, of racial capitalist, white supremacist, removalist violence. And that persists, you know, from the 17th century on, but in the, in the story that I'm really telling from the beginning of the, of the 19th century on. It is, it's, it's a story also, however, of... Um, Continued and consequential resistance to that. Whether we're talking about the, you know, the Arikara in in 1824, who really turned back an effort to proletarianize the the Native Americans involved in the in the fur trade, or the way that in fact the uh, um, Shoshones are are able to really hold the line on the fur trade on the in the Upper Mississippi um, for for a long time and to keep white fur traders from from traveling further up and so you know there's a set of stories that, that it's it's never a a simple um, sort of settler colonial or or imperial um, expansion it's it's a war. Hmm. I think the complexity of the story is precisely its its strength or at least as a reader that's it was I really appreciated that um, you also carry that forward. So in coming chapters, in the next chapters on um, slavery and St. Louis, you show that there are in the city both pro and anti-slavery white factions. Um, But within the anti-slavery camp, there are several different approaches on offer um, in the mid-19th century. So one is the imperialist approach, um, people who are free soilers who oppose slavery because it's cheapening white wages and because it's creating this landholding aristocracy that they're not a part of. Um, and then the response that's coming from these people is to limit the entry of free black people into St. Louis or really in, just remove them from the United States if possible um, and to compensate for any loss that comes from abolition by annexing more and more native land and moving further and further west. Um, and then on the other hand, there's also an anti-slavery faction, probably much smaller, um, that is opposing slavery as 
uh, it opposes all forms of private property. Um, so tell us a bit more about this conflict as it played out in St. Louis um, before and during the Civil War. Yeah, I, I think of that as basically a, um, a conflict between a sort of a white supremacist anti-slavery liberalism and a anti-slavery radicalism that is at its very best um, able to imagine a set of um, political alliances between black and white. And I think that one of the stories that I'm trying to tell is the way that that alliance, that liberal radical alliance, could hold together through the period of the Civil War. And it could hold together because they are both in one way anti-slavery. But beneath that is a, a real instability around the question of property and around the question of um, even the, the bare presence of African-Americans in the West. And I think the center of gravity um, in Missouri as, as elsewhere in the West, and, and I think in the United States, is with a kind of white supremacist, anti-slavery free soilism, with the idea that, and, and which is, is an imperialist center of gravity, with the idea that the West is going to be a place for white workers and white farmers to fulfill their um, sort of patriarchal potential in, in householding, um, you know, freedom, that, that kind of Republican ideal that I, I started looking at so long ago. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that I think of as an important argument that I make in the book is to try to look at, um, really from the, to, to try to look at Abraham Lincoln and the, the Union Army from the standpoint of St. Louis. And so immediately what you see, you know, this is, uh, I guess, a point of the moment, is that many of the people who are the heroes of the Union Army war effort were Indian killers. They had begun their careers, um, many of them in California, in in a set of wars up and down, California in the 1840s and 50s that are, I think, um, quite clearly genocidal. Mm-hmm. And so, so that leaves us with, with a dilemma that's, that's kind of cutting through our society right now. I mean, we have, we have, there's, you know, all the Confederate monuments are cutting down, coming down and being contested. But at the very edge of that, there's also a reckoning with imperialist monuments, with Columbus most obviously. But of course, we haven't quite yet got to the fact that so many of these Union soldiers were, were Indian killers. So that's, that's one part of it. And then one part of it's more directly about what I see as an effort to hold the coalition that was the, the Union Army supporting coalition together um, by balancing um, every step towards the emancipation of enslaved people with, um, with imperialism, with, with the Homestead Act, or with the Transcontinental Railroad, or with the, um, the land-grant universities. And so to use, to, to effectively imperially seize from Native Americans the West and to distribute it 
to the white population of the United States in various forms um, as a way to, you know, sort of uh, to, to compensate um, white people for the emancipation of, of African-Americans. Right. And that's a kind of racial capitalism that's not, you know, that we don't, I guess, think about um, as much as we should. It's not some effort to divide a unified working class by doing these things. These things are actually the economically logical things to be doing. Yeah, I, I, I think that one one of the the way I mean, I wanted to, to try over the course of the book and over the course of, of my teaching and, and other things that I'm writing to think about racial capitalism as multiform and variable and changing over time. And certainly one of the things that you see is an effort on the part of um, elites uh, to, to compensate or to co-opt or to include, to share the spoils of empire with, uh, with working white people, working and poor white people. And that's, that's really, to me, for instance, the, the story of Thomas Hart Benton, who is, you know, he, he's a kind of a in a way he's a corporate lapdog for the the wealthiest fur trading interests and and commercial interests in the state of Missouri but at the same time he's a real um seen as a kind of a populist champion mm. of of the common man who wants to distribute the west to to poor work, poor white people on on very very favorable favorable terms and so you know figures like that are are interesting to me and people who I'm I'm trying to make sense of Mm. So throughout the book, you rely a lot on the black radical tradition. You rely a lot on Du Bois. And um, your book has actually been called one of the best Du Boisian histories of America. Um, So one of the places that this comes through most explicitly for a reader is where you discuss the counter-revolution of property that followed the 1877 strike in St. Louis. So could you tell us what was the strike and then what is a counter-revolution of property? What did it look like? Yeah, so so one of the things I, di- I didn't speak about as clearly as I should have before when we were talking about the Civil War is, is who these radicals are. And uh, uh, many of them are um, refugees from the European revolutions of, of 1848. And some of them are, are communists. And mm-hmm. at least one of them is, is quite famous in the, in the intellectual history of Marxism. And that's Joseph Wedemeyer who was a companion, an intellectual companion of Marx and Engels and was, uh, I think, the, the publisher, the first publisher of the 18th Brumaire and the translator of the German ideology. And so Wedemeyer turns up in St. Louis at some point um, right before the Civil War and becomes, um, he, he joins the United States Army, he's a colonel, and he is actually the person who divide, designed the artillery defense of the city during the Civil War. And he is part of a circle of communists who are around John C. Fremont, who is a um, fascinating and um, rebarbative, disgusting figure, both an Indian killer, but also the person who issued the first general emancipation order in the United States in August of 1861, which was issued in civil wars and immediately countermanded by, by Lincoln. And um, Fremont did this under the influence of these, these communists, um, Wedemeyer and Franz Siegel is another important one, who really convinced him that um, the war, in, in order to be won, 
the war had to be a war against property as well as a war for union. It had to be a war against slavery as well as a war to preserve the union in 1861. So there, there is that radical tradition in St. Louis. And I think that it, it follows through and, you know, there, there are various ways you could pick it up in the years between the end of the civil war and, and 1877, but it explodes in St. Louis in um, 1877, which was a year that they were there were railroad strikes all across the United States. But um, in St. Louis, that railroad strike grew into a general strike. Mm. And by the end of the general strike, um, there was a people's committee that was making decisions about um, which factories would be allowed to reopen on what terms and which trains could come in and out of the cities. There was, um, you could argue, a, a dictatorship of the proletariat, which is a phrase that many think um, originated with Joseph Vedemeyer. Hmm. Um, that general strike was crushed, and it was crushed by a combination of um, vigilantes armed by the ruling class of the, the city and state militia and federal troops coming in in reserve, um, fresh from fighting wars against, against Native Americans. And I argue following Du Bois and particularly following the work of um, Manu Karuka, that what f- what happened after that was a kind of a counter-revolution. And it was um, the emergence, the, the reassertion of power by the, the commercial, the capitalist um, ruling class in St. Louis. And it was... Um, it was basically a um, doubling down on empire. So they began more and more to draw more and more wealth from, from the West. And so, so what I'm trying to, to argue there is that the resolution, the final resolution of the Civil War in St. Louis was um, in a um, imperial expansion into the West. And I'm trying there to, I think, draw a new resonance onto the, the question of, of reunion after the Civil War. And so it's been long understood that um, reunion after the Civil War involved the, um, the reunion between North and South. I'm talking about the reunion of white elites involved the um, selling out of the African-Americans in the, in the South involved the removal in 1877 of the United States troops that were occupying the South. And, and incidentally, or not incidentally, really, that was a political program that, that really emerged out of Missouri in the 1870s, liberal republicanism. What I think has been um, less fully present in that um, set of arguments that historians, I think, probably by and large agree on, is that the site of the reunion was by and large in the West. And it was with the, the United States economic expansion, imperial economic expansion um, through the Transcontinental Railroad, the Indian Wars of the 1870s and 80s, and um, imperial expansion, economic expansion into Mexico, and then gradually um, to the Pacific. So I'm trying to, to think about all of that imperialism as, in effect, the material ground of the Civil War itself. Hmm. And I think that also carries through in the way you 
look at and understand the uh, world wars of the 20th century. So um, you recount um, in the book that um, 1917 East St. Louis massacre um, was one of the you know deadliest massacres against African-American people at the time. And you center um, in that story um, not just attitudinal racism, um, but also the many misdiagnoses that the city's labor movement at the time made, um, specifically when um, they went on a strike and saw the failure of their strike um, as the fault of black workers rather than of their employer or of their own exclusion of black workers. Um, and this is a fault line that we know appears in the labor movement again and again. Um, how do you account for that? And what, what can we learn you know, about this wartime labor mobilization that happened and, and what it turned into? Yeah, I, I think that, that Du Bois has a, an essay about the um, massacre in East St. Louis called Of Work and Wealth. And one of the things that he says in that essay, I believe it's in that essay, is that, that among the greatest failures of the organized labor in the United States uh, by 1917 was the failure to recognize four million emancipated African-Americans as labor. And so you have a situation in, in East St. Louis, which is um, unionized under the auspices of the, the AFL, where the locals are all segregated. And so the national AFL um, is officially open to African-American workers, but it's really up to the locals whether or not African-Americans will be included and all the locals in East St. Louis work were segregated at a time when African-Americans were increasingly leaving the South and coming north on railroad trains, um, particularly the Illinois Central, which runs right up from New Orleans through Mississippi to St. Louis and then, then you know, on to Chicago. And so you have a massive uh, migration of African-Americans um, looking for, for better lives and, and fairer employment. Um, coming north, and at the same time, you have a kind of a white supremacist um, retrenchment of, of the notion of, you know, these, these are white cities and white jobs. And all of that explodes over the course of the summer of 1917 in East St. Louis, particularly around a strike at the aluminum ore factory, um, which was the largest aluminum processing plant in the United States. And um, the bosses bring in um, African-American workers. Those workers are, after a time, protected by the Illinois state militia. And that sets off a kind of a anaphylactic response among the white working class who, I think, understand themselves as the true Americans and all of a sudden are being um, painted as as unpatriotic for being on strike during during wartime, um, and and it explodes in a kind of a, a removalist paroxysm. Um, I think the thing that I have in the in the book to add to that story is a focus on um, really following Ida B. Wells in this chapter rather than, than Du Bois, because Ida B. Wells comes to East St. Louis, you know, literally while the place is still smoking, two days after the, after the massacre, she comes and, and gets off the train. And I mean, it, it's impossible, I think, to, 
to fathom her courage. You know, uh, mm. a, a black woman walking alone from the train depot. She had to walk across a creek that was probably still choked with bodies. Um, and walking to the the town hall where people had taken refuge and then going out with black women to, to look at their, their looted, burned and destroyed houses. And really it's through Wells um, writing about the massacre that I came to understand it as a fight about labor and the plants, but also as a, an effort at, at black removal as an attack on the black future in East St. Louis as an attack on black women and children. And so to then, and it was really, I think probably as I started to see the massacre that way, that I started to understand that the history of removal that I had been tracking in the 19th century um, carried forward into the, into the 20th. Hmm. And the story gets pretty dire even after that. So you talk about there's a resurgence of labor radicalism in the 1930s, um, which is actually interracial to some extent and um, gains gains a lot, um, but then becomes suppressed by yet another counter-revolution carried out by the U.S. government, corporations, and white unions. And this time, um, they build the removalism into the material infrastructures of the city, um, of everyday life. So what does this look like? Um, and what are some of the key features, you know, of, of the counter-revolution that happens after the 30s? Yes. So I think the, the thing that you start with is, is to me, one of the things that I um, had not expected when I started working on 20th Century St. Louis is a history of um, really, really vanguard radicalism. And so one of the, the moments in that is the, the strike at Funston Nut Factory, which was the largest mm-hmm. employer of African-American woman, women in the city, employed about 2,500 African-American women. And this was a strike that was largely organized by African-American women um, in tandem with and with the support of the Communist Party, which was very strong in St. Louis in the 1930s, as it was in, in other parts of the United States. And they, I think it was a, it was a nine day strike and, and they, they won in the, in the teeth of the, the beginning of the depression, right? I mean, this was, I think mm. it, was, it was 1932 or 1933. I can't remember right now. And I followed that up with, you know, a set of other strikes in the 1930s. One of them um, famously and importantly at Emerson Electric, the company with which my you know intellectual journey to St. Louis began um, was, I think one of the maybe the second longest sit-down strike in the, in the history of the United States at that point. I think that was 1936 or 37. And these are, are interracial strikes in, in every case. And you have black and white people striking together, going to jail together. And so there is something that is very powerful and um, very threatening happening in St. Louis. Um, I think that... The Second World War takes some of the um, takes some of the wind out of the sails of, of that. I think that, that partly because the working class in St. Louis is transformed by a lot of in migration from rural whites from Missouri who are coming into defense industry, um, who are not um, organized in the way that that the working class was before, not radicalized. And I think there is a, a kind of a um, I think there is a kind of a counter revolutionary attack 
um, that that takes the form of um, something that, that I think the the alliance, the communists, um, that, that nobody in St. Louis was prepared to resist because it took the form of real estate capitalism. And so I think that the the unions and the communists um, in particular, but also the black middle class organizations like the, the Urban League had focused a lot of their energy and, and quite rightly on the question of employment. But what they had to some degree um, not seen coming was a new economic formation that was going to be as focused on um, expropriation as it was on different forms of exploitation. And so the racial division of the labor market, which we, we saw in East St. Louis, is, is still present and it's still a problem. But what you see is interest coming in and just tearing down neighborhoods tearing down, you know, um, thousands, well, hundreds of acres at a time um, in, along the riverfront in St. Louis where the, where the arch is today and then in a neighborhood called Mill Creek Valley, which was really the, the heart of working class black St. Louis where they tore down. It, it, you know, it, it was a, a gradual process. Mill Creek Valley wasn't torn down until, until 1959. The riverfront was torn down in, in 1930. And so what's happening is, number one, the value of surviving property in the city is being increased. And this is quite clearly an explicit purpose of the teardowns because the overall number of square feet in the city is being diminished. Right. And so real estate holders um, are being both compensated uh, for property um, if it's being torn down and are being um, rewarded by being able to charge, charge higher rents in surviving property. Um, I think after the Second World War, and this would be the case for Mill Creek Valley, there's also a very explicit emphasis on the employment of white men returning from service. And so there's an effort to, to create jobs. And um, I think that effort fuels the, um, the interstate highways, which are, are driven through black neighborhoods um, in St. Louis, and it fuels the, the mania for destroying Mill Creek Valley, which is, you know, as I said, almost five, 500 acres, um, populated by 20,000 people, 800 business or cultural institutions. And, and uh, when, when, they, when they finish, I think there's maybe six buildings left and everybody's been, been pushed out into the city. There's a, there's a working assumption that everyone, you know, that all these, these displaced people will land in the Pruitt-Igo housing project, which is being constructed, um, had been constructed by 1959. I think it was opened in 1954, but there's no real mechanism to set up, set up to help people um, relocate. There's no sort of institutional infrastructure for helping people. And indeed um, calls from, um, African-Americans and progressive whites to set that up, uh, you know, are, are, they fall on deaf ears. Hmm. And then this is where you come back to where we began talking about what we began talking about at the beginning of the podcast, um, where you talk about 
the structural racism that you know undergirds the Ferguson uprising of 2014. Um, and you mentioned in the book that the term gets thrown around a lot, but it's too often used to just vaguely gesture at really bad racism or really persistent racism. Um, and in the last chapter of the book, you explain what we should mean by it instead. So could you go into that for our listeners about, yeah. Yeah, really what I'm, what I'm trying to talk about, I think, is, is the way that um, programs which may begin as um, explicitly racist are structured into the fabric or, or may not in the in the beginning be justified as explicitly racist, but nevertheless have very disparate racial effects, um, are, are sort of uh, become the common sense of our daily lives because they're built into the landscape. And that would, you know, an obvious example would be where the interstates are laid out mm-hmm. and who's employed in building the interstates. And then the way that they effectively serve um, suburban interests by allowing suburbanites to, to commute in and out of cities in, in order to work, even as they, you know, they, they, they function in a city like St. Louis as, um, as bypass routes, as ways to speed, you know, through or across devastated black neighborhoods on the way downtown or the way across the country. And I think that's that's true of the United States in general. I mean, why why do we need um, six a six lane highway between um, Boston and and rural Maine? Well, that's to to serve vacationing Bostonians as mm-hmm. they drive north, or you know, and, and you could you know, if you think about whatever cities you have been in or or lived in, you can extend the list. And so, beginning with that, then I tried over the course of the book to track the successive um, displacements of the African-American population of St. Louis. And again, this is schematic rather than exhaustive, but, but you could argue that there's a kind of an arc of displacement that runs from East St. Louis to Mill Creek Valley to the Pruitt-Igo housing project, which was blown up in 1972 to North County where Ferguson is. And so there's, there's a serial kind of displacement of this population, as the, the, it's in in every single case, there's a different kind of um, money to be made off of uh, off of the control or removal of the population. And so, there, you know, it's not as if it's just just racism that's displacing the population. It's a successive of it's a succession of kind of racialist racial capitalist forms of exploitation and increasingly just expropriation. And what I argue characterizes our moment is um, it's a moment where because of the the deindustrialization of the cities um, in favor of, of the suburbs and exurbs, but but really the deindustrialization of the United States of America and global outsourcing, the black population of the city of St. Louis has um, become increasingly inert from the standpoint of production. You know, there are just no jobs for people Mm. and there's, there's no real way to exploit them for labor. But what's happened then is a set of um, exactions or, or, or extractions, whether that's uh, payday loans, which I try to talk about, or it's Mm. for-profit policing of the kind that that happened in Ferguson, 
or it's the economy of tax abatements, which I try to talk about in fairly great detail, where the presence of um, poor um, African-Americans is used to justify tax breaks for wealthy corporations, which which build, you know, tax free buildings um, thus robbing those very disadvantaged populations of any funding for the schools because real estate fact taxes are um, school school funding in the United States is generally tied to the real estate taxes. Mm-hmm. So all over city, you know, St. Louis is, I think, the, the first or second most tax abated city in the United States. And all of those are justified by the presence of, quote, urban blight, which is a euphemism for black people. And then finally, um, the the economy of mass incarceration. And so I see the the, the final way in which um, just the, the basic presence of an African American population is used to support um, businesses and programs that are advantageous to white people in in mass incarceration, and the way that the state of Missouri has located, I can't remember what it is, but maybe it's 18 of 22 um, penal institutions in the state of Missouri are are located in predominantly white rural areas. And so there's a constant flow then of African-Americans, many of whom have been, you know, incarcerated for the the sorts of um, bullshit offenses that, that we see all over the nation, particularly around drugs. Um, but also small property crimes and are then, you know, become in effect a subsidy to white construction workers, white prison guards, white caterers, et cetera, in, in, in rural Missouri. Right. Um, so you end the book by talking about um, the fact that there are a lot of black organizers in St. Louis who um, are working towards changing things. Um, and we've obviously seen that now um, happening nationwide. So what are um, reasons to hope, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think as I've tried to think about the book more with a little bit of distance, I think probably the argument is that the history of St. Louis has frequently instance, influenced, but often prefigured the history of the United States. Mm. And I see a lot of prefiguration in what has happened in St. Louis over the last three or four years that I've been, you know, really finishing. Um, There was an uprising in St. Louis in the fall of 2017 around the acquittal of a particularly murderous, murdering police officer. And that was the, and the response um, on the part of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, St. Louis, Missouri Police Department, was um, as it was a police riot. It was a month-long police riot in St. Louis, very much like what we've just seen in the United States in general. And so in the aftermath of that, and and I think that this is, I hope it's in a way is prefigurative, there have been some um, small successes, noteworthy successes, the election of... um, Kim Gardner as the circuit prosecutor, the circuit attorney in, in St. Louis and Wesley Bell in the county. So the displacement of at least the old white supremacist aligned um, prosecutor's office. And they have um, somewhat amazingly, I think, after two years of organizing just uh, yesterday or the day before, managed to finally close the medium security prison in St. Louis called the Workhouse. 
mm. which is a place that a lot of people um, were held, you know, poor people who couldn't pay bail were being held in the workhouse, which was this, you know, just just horrible um, setting with, you know, it's either too hot in the summer. I mean, a couple of, of summers ago, there was a real crisis around. It was like 120 degrees and, you know, 80, 90% humidity in the workhouse. And so then they brought in these huge industrial air conditioning units. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, 55, 60 degrees and there everybody was freezing. Just mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's, it's a torturous um, environment. And just two days ago after, after a huge organizational effort on the part of um, African-American organizers in St. Louis, that was abolished. And I think that, that what we just saw this week with um Expect us marching through the private neighborhood on Portland Place, and then these, um, you know, these kooky McCloskeys coming out of their house with guns and waving the guns around. I mean, I think in that way, the city of St. Louis um, prefigures um, both the the radical possibilities of this moment, um, because I think Expect Us was making a point, not simply about. Um, Black Lives Matter in the abstract or about statues, but they're making a point about the way that the history of race and empire is embedded in the history of St. Louis by violating that neighborhood. And like all the best, um, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience, what they managed to do was to trigger an overreaction and to make something apparent about the society. And what I think they made apparent about the society was they revealed anew the connection between um, property and white violence in the history of the United States. And so I, you know, I, I really, um, I, I really think that, that we still have a lot to learn from from what people are doing in San Luis. The things that I focus on in the epilogue are things that I think about as people just just kind of getting on with it and building a different kind of city mm. um, within the interstices of racial capitalism and, and police violence. And I, I think I finally found a word for that um, in, in abolition or in, in what, what Ruth Gilmore says, that, you know, there are people who are building fragments of a future. They're, they're building different forms of um, ways of uh, being in right relation to nature and to one another that kind of exemplify for us a better path forward and ways that, that to me are um, inspiring. And, and I say inspiring, you know, in, in kind of a deep humility because there, there are people who are living in, in a sort of a spirit of courage and um, generosity and humility that I haven't attained in my own life. And so I really do think that we have a lot to learn from, from just, just watching, um, watching these, these people and how, how they're rebuilding the, the city sort of within and against itself. Hmm. So, Given that, given everything that's been happening, um, what are you working on now, and what's going to be next for you? Are you going to stay in Missouri? What? Right now, I, I have just—I um, mean, having finished a season of homeschooling, 
Mm. I am, uh, you know, my seven-year-old is now, uh, you know, fully entertained by um, a little bit too much Pokemon Go. And <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to get started on a book about John Brown. So I want to write a book mm. about the um, anti-slavery revolutionary John Brown and to try to reckon with, to try to think together um, the politics of empire, right? So John Brown fights a war in Kansas against slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but that war is in Kansas, which is to say that war is, is a war that is also uh, being staged on Indian ground. So I want to think about that. And I want to try to think about the different influences on, on John Brown, who was very, very cognizant of the black radical tradition, who had read about the Haitian revolution, who had read about the, Maroons in Jamaica and Suriname, but was also in conversation with the very sort of white supremacist opponents of slavery who we were talking about a little bit earlier. Mm. Um, specifically, Hinton Rowan Helper, who's somebody I wrote about in my second book, um, and and sort of to try and think about how those different kinds of of commitments um, shaped shaped his his endeavors in, in Kansas and um, at Harper's Ferry. And I want to think about um, the role of, of revolutionary violence. I wanted to, to meditate, and, and I don't yet have an answer for this, but I want to think very hard about John Brown going out in the middle of the night in Kansas and pulling um, pro-slavery militiamen out of their, their houses in the middle of the night and cutting their heads off. And mm-hmm. to try to reckon forthrightly with um, the the political and um, moral implications of that. Well, just like this book, it seems like that book is going to be, or that project is going to be a very timely one, um, no matter when it's completed. Yeah, I was going to say, I wish I could say that I'll talk to you soon about it. But. <laughs> well, I'll definitely keep an eye out for it and follow uh, up with you. But thank you so much for this amazing book and for talking to our listeners. Uh, Thank you for those amazing questions. I feel like they they made the book better, even as we were talking about. So I really appreciate (laughs) it. Thank you. All right.